The second reading is taken from the book of Isaiah, chapter 43, verse 16, to chapter 44, verse 5. This is what, sorry, start again. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there, never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. <coughs> Forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honour me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the desert and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. Yet you have not called upon me, O Jacob. You have not wearied yourselves for me, O Israel. You have not brought me sheep for burnt offerings, nor honoured me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with grain offerings, nor wearied you with demands for incense. You have not brought any fragrant calamus for me, or lavished on me the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins, and wearied me with your offences. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and remembers your sin no more. Review the past for me. Let us argue the matter together. State the case for your innocence. Your first father sinned. Your spokesman rebelled against me. So I will disgrace the dignitaries of your temple, and I will consign Jacob to destruction and Israel to scorn. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. This is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, who will help you. Do not be afraid, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. One will say, I belong to the Lord. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Still another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and will take the name Israel. The past. Something that is unalterable something you can never go back to, except in your memory. And in our memories we can revisit the past. And experts tell us that every time we do so, we recreate it in our minds. We reconstruct the events that took place and our part in them with varying degrees of accuracy. So that you might remember something that's actually a little bit different to what really happened. 
So bizarrely, while the past can never be altered or changed, every time we remember it, that is precisely what we do. In our minds, we tweak it a little bit, one way or another. Sometimes we look back on the past through rose-tinted spectacles, and we remember things as being so much better than they actually were. I like Steve Turner's poem, These are the good old days, just wait and see. The past can become a nostalgic haven for us to escape into, a place where we might run away to avoid confronting a future that can be a bit frightening. Because when we look back at the past, at least we know what the outcome is. And that reduces the likelihood of any unpleasant surprises. So the past may be a place that we choose to go back to in our minds because we can enjoy the memories that we create about it. But our memories of the past can also be bad. And if that's the case, the past can be a threat. It can be a place that traps us. A kind of labyrinth from which we can't escape as we go over and over and over events in our mind. Replaying them, dissecting them, picking them apart, analysing and maybe bitterly regretting the role that we played in the outcome and knowing that there's nothing we can do to change it. Or maybe we just recycle the, the hurts and betrayals inflicted on us by other people. We pick at the scabs in our mind, even though we know it hurts and it doesn't make any difference. We just can't seem, seem to stop doing it. Maybe it's to people in both those situations that God says, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. Don't keep going back to it because it was so good and things were so much better in the good old days. Don't keep going back to it because you're, you're trapped in, in just, just going over and over and over the bad stuff that's happened. God says, look, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? Forget the past, God says in Isaiah 43. There is no future in it. Yet that can be easier said than done. Sometimes memories can be so painful and traumatic that our mind just deletes them or represses them. And we kind of, you know, just, just try and forget about them. But sooner or later they always bubble up to the surface again. Or they can stay beneath the surface and gradually infect and poison our minds and drag us down into depression or illness. The past can't simply be denied or forgotten or disowned because it is part of where we come from. If we pretend it doesn't exist, it continues to haunt us in other ways. It can never really be dead and buried because it's part of who we are. We can't detach ourselves from it or simply forget about it. In order to come to terms with it, there is a sense in which we need to own it. We need to work through it. We need to figure out and acknowledge and be honest about our role in it. Only then can we begin to move on from it. Lewis Speed was absolutely right when he said, forgiving doesn't erase a bitter past. A healed memory is not a deleted memory. Forgiving what we cannot forget creates a new way to remember. We change the memory of our past 
into a hope for the future. So like it or not, the past is there behind us. And uh, we, we can't forget about it. Even as we're called not to dwell on it, there's a way in which we need to come to terms with it in order that we can move on from it. And strangely, it's bizarre. I mean, this passage where God says to the people, look, forget the past, I'm doing something new. That comes in the centre of the passage, which is a, a whole recounting of his history with his people. Even as he says, you know, don't go back there, there's no point in remembering the past. All the time, it is an account of exactly what has happened in the past. Starts with the Exodus, where God tells them, you know, don't remember the past, and God says that I'm the God who led you through the Red Sea. He recalls destroying the Egyptian army that tried to pursue them, extinguishing them and snuffing them out like a wick. So the God who calls the nation into being through that act of deliverance says, that's where you come from, but I want you to look forwards, not backwards, because I'm going to do something new. In addressing his people for a situation in which they are in exile in Babylon, hundreds of miles from home, he says, I'm going to make a way for you through the desert this time, rather than through the Red Sea. Because his people are slaves again, to the Babylonians this time rather than the Egyptians, but God will deliver them in a more wonderful way than the way he did before. So they're to stop lamenting about the past. They're to start looking forwards. Just as God provided water for his people in the desert before they entered the promised land the first time, he will do the same again. He will give his people water to drink in the wilderness because they are the people whom he's chosen. Because they are the people he made for himself so that they might declare his praise. You are my chosen possession, says God. Of course I'm going to redeem you and rescue you and look after you and bring you home and take care of you in the process because I made you so that you might be mine and so that you might honour me. That's where the past comes back to damage the present again. Because if God brought them into the promised land all those years ago, how come they ended up being exiles and slaves in Babylon? And there's a history between God and his people, a history of a damaged relationship, a past that is too painful simply to be deleted or forgotten, a past that even as it kind of is recalled in this passage, gives rise to acrimonious recriminations. They have both been tired of each other, God and his people. God accusing, accuses them of not having bothered to make an effort to make the relationship work. They accuse God of imposing all sorts of demands upon them and, and count the sacrifices that he had to bring them and, and it was just all too much trouble to do. God complains that you know they, they, they were too weary in their efforts to, to pray to him. And whereas they found the sacrifices that they were expected to offer burden and tiresome, that they wore God, God out with all their sins and their offences. Even though God is the God who blocks out transgressions and keeps no record of their wrongs, they, for their part, would not let the matter drop. They insisted on their innocence. They were blaming God for all their problems until God in his frustration says, Look, you've sinned against me from the word go consigning you to destruction, hence their current exile in Babylon. 
And God, as he, as he says, all this stuff that's happened in the past makes it clear that he's defending himself against their accusations against him. And at the same time, he's saying, look at all the stuff that you didn't do to make this relationship work. It's a past that God wants them to move on from. It's a past that God wants them to leave behind. But at this stage, it is still all just a bit too raw and near the surface. It's a messy and a confusing passage that in its very nature, kind of zigzagging backwards and forwards, reflects the unfinished business that there is between God and his people. Because God on his part is ready to forgive and forget and move on because God is able to do that. But how do you forgive someone who stubbornly insists that they have done nothing wrong? That is really, really hard to do. And there is still too much anger and pain and hurt pride within God's people that they are nursing for reconciliation to take place at this point in time. And part of the problem is that this is not a relationship of equals. Israel is like a small child stamping her foot and saying, I hate you! And rebuffing all attempts to sort the matter out. And God, for his part, insists that the problems that arose weren't his fault either. And so it's a standoff. Both wanting to move on, both unable to move on, because the past still troubles them. Perhaps part of Israel's problem may have been a sense of powerlessness. There's nothing like feeling powerless to make you feel angry, is there? God holds all the cards. You can't argue with God and win. It never works. Israel is his creation in the first place. Without, their, without God, they wouldn't exist. He stoutly denies that he's mistreated them in any way. He would forgive them like a shot if only they would admit that it's their fault. But they won't do that. And so God says, well, the plight is entirely of your own making then. But the past simply is something in which they are stuck. Because God is right and they're not prepared to admit that they are wrong and, and that the, the invulnerability of God, the imperviousness of God, the fact that God is, is beyond their grasp is a real barrier to sorting out the troubles that they've had. Too much pain and anger for it simply to go away and be dealt with. I wonder whether that is ultimately why the God who forgives his people, who blocks out their transgressions and remembers their sins no more, had to come in the person of his son and die on a cross. Because there God ceases to be the God who's always right. The God who stands says, I'm right and you're wrong. You've got to come to terms with the fact that you're wrong and then I can forgive you. God becomes vulnerable to our anger and our pain and our desire to lash out against him. In Jesus, God abandons the moral high ground, the place where he is right and we are wrong. And he comes to a place where we can sit in judgment on him and we did so condemning his son to death even though he had done 
nothing wrong. And in Jesus we see a God who isn't impervious to the pain of a broken relationship, but who absorbs that pain into himself. Who's not prepared to stand off and say, I'm right, you're wrong, if you admit you're wrong, I can forgive you. But is willing himself to become vulnerable and take into himself our pain and our anger, be the enmity we feel against him because we are such messed up people. And it's ultimately only in Jesus that God can bring people to the point where they can do what he tells them to do here in Isaiah, to forget the past, to move on from it. Because only in Jesus does God deal with the fallout from our past. Where our past may be so damaged that it's too painful to bring to mind, it's through the cross of Jesus that God takes into himself the sins that we've committed. God takes upon himself the damage caused by the sins committed against us. He absorbs into himself all the pain and the hurt and the anger that go with them. And instead, into our minds, into our hearts, he releases the love and the forgiveness and the grace and the healing that we need. We may not be able to forget the past, but it can be healed for us in Jesus. And in Jesus, our damaged past becomes part of his story. And he invites us to embrace his future. Even to the point of enabling us to die with him on the cross so that we can move forward into the future he has planned and purposed for us. Forget the past. It's always easier said than done. Sometimes it takes a miracle for that to happen. But God has provided the miracle in his son Jesus Christ. In Christ there is healing for the past. In Christ there is release from the past. In Christ there is a future that's not determined by the past. God had needed to come in the person of his son to enable the forgiveness and the newness that he spoke about in this passage to happen. So it's no surprise to me actually that though God says, you know, after all the disasters, saying, I'm consigning you to destruction, I'm sending you to Babylon, there is, there is a promise that look, I'm still going to do something new, I'm going to pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants, like streams on the thirsty ground, like water on dry ground. God's promise of doing a new thing, of pouring out his spirit on his people and making them new, that only happens after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because it's only when the reconciliation has taken place through Christ. And the sin and the pain and the anger and the hurt of the past have been dealt with that we're ready to receive his gift to us of himself through the Holy Spirit which marks us out as God's people in a way that we can be pleased and proud to declare is true. We, here tonight, look back at the account of the pouring out of God's Spirit after the death and resurrection of Jesus and thank God that this has happened. We see God's fulfilment of the promise in the past. It is part of our history. Yet the burden of this passage is that God doesn't want us looking back. God wants us looking forward. 
because his pouring out of his spirit at Pentecost was not a kind of one-off event. The tap was turned on, the tap was turned off, and that was it. What we got then is going to have to be enough to last us. God is still the God who pours out his spirit on his people and their children, like water on dry ground, like streams in the desert. That is still God's purpose and intention for us. So that we should spring up in the future like grass in the meadow or like poplar trees by flowing streams. Whatever the past it is that you look back on tonight, whether it's rosy or bleak, God's purpose and desire in the future is still to pour out His Spirit upon us as individuals, as a church, to bless and renew and restore us and fulfill his purpose in us and through us. God wants us to be people who face a future that we know nothing about, but people who face that future with expectation and with confidence and with faith, in anticipation of his blessing upon us and his pouring out of his spirit upon us and upon our children. Just thinking about, um, this is a bit of our digression perhaps, but just thinking this afternoon about this passage, remembering this morning all the children up on the platform going out to their classes section by section and thinking, that is God's desire for the generations that come after us. That God would pour out his spirit upon them. It says, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring, my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in the meadow, like poplar trees by the flowing streams. One will say, I belong to the Lord. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write on his hand the Lord's and take the name of Israel. That is God's desire for the children and young people in the church. That they would be recipients of the spirit, that they would flourish. And they'd be pleased to say, I belong to God. So hold, those of you here this morning, hold that image in your mind of the children and young people going out and pray that God will do exactly what is on God's heart for them. Because in the long-term future of Brighton Road Baptist Church, in 30, 40 years where most of us here will be dead and gone, there needs to be a generation coming up after us. It takes God pouring out his spirit upon the next generation for that to happen. Living in the past is always dangerous for churches. We can become nostalgic. We remember how things used to be in the good old days. And while we know we can never go back because times have changed and society isn't the same, thinking about how things used to be never helps us move forward in God's purposes at all. You can't recreate past that doesn't exist anymore. So don't keep looking over your shoulder at how things used to be and wishing we still use the Green Baptist hymn book all the time. But nor should you allow painful memories of the past to stop you moving forward into God's future either. The problems we've encountered in the past, in our own lives, in churches, the pain and the difficulty and the issues that have arisen that sometimes have tested our faith, sometimes have made us feel, I don't want to belong to church anymore. Why, why do God's people behave this way? These things can really, really hold us back. Don't let them. 
Don't let them. Let God do a new thing. The past is gone. And God's healing and forgiveness for it come to us in the death and resurrection of Jesus. The future belongs to God. It is his gift to his people. And we belong to a God who pours out his spirit on the children of his people. So, don't dwell on the past, be it good or bad. Look forward. Because God is in the business of doing something new. And he doesn't want us to miss it. Let's pray. Lord, some of us have been Christians for a long time. And we know that more of our life lies in the past than there is for us to live in the future. And from that point of view, it's easier to look back. Lord, we we lay our past at your feet. We thank you for the good times. We commit to you the unfinished business that still troubles us. We pray that you would determine our future. That it would be you and not our past that determines the direction we go in from this point on. Strengthen our faith in you so that we can face the future with confidence, not with fear. May we be people who recognise the new thing that you are doing when it comes our way. Be ready to welcome it and embrace it and be part of it. And Lord, would you pour out your Spirit upon us and upon our children and glorify your name in and through your people here in Horsham. For we ask it in and for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord.